Okay, well, we have so many issues that have come up of late and hot issues. And a lot of people, though, in the culinary industry stepping up to help. Um, we're going to be talking uh, to Art Smith and Rick Bayless um, about this committee. That's a, it's a grassroots organization that got set up to help the artisanal cheesemakers uh, in, in America, in the United States. It is just the U.S., right, Rick and Art? Yes. 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 Uh-huh. Now, I don't know that there's much introduction to be done here. You both are superstars, and you've you've played a major role in our scene for so long. You could catch us up. Is there anything new going on in Chicago, Rick? Um, We're just trying to figure out how to stay alive in the restaurant world down here. And um, I will tell you that it's not an easy thing, and um, every day, um, uh, new restaurants get added to the list that are just simply not going to open up, which means Who else? That, I know Fat Rice isn't opening. Oh, no, there's a list of, I think it's about 40 right now that are not opening. Okay. So there's a whole lot of them. And the Fat Rice thing was, um, that was sort of caused by, by many other things. But, no, there's a, a nice long list of restaurants that are not going to reopen. Um, but what, what, what that means is that, not only are the employees of that restaurant out of business, but it really puts a big dent in the supply chain. And yeah. that's the thing that we're kind of here to talk about because right. most of the artisanal cheese makers, as well as many of the farms that we buy from and uh, the guy that we buy all of our chicken and pork from, um, all of a sudden everything came to a screeching halt and many of the people – their entire production goes to restaurants. So then what happens after that? Because it's not just us and our family of employees, but it's also all of these family farms and their family of employees. Now, let, let's, let's, let's state something up front here. We, we, the reason you're on the program, one of the reasons you're on the program today is because you have a, a message that's important. But the most important message for listeners to understand is here are you guys try, trying to keep your business alive, trying to continue employing your employees, and you still find time for something important. <laughs> yes, especially if it has to do with our suppliers, I'll tell you that. Yes, no, sure. I mean, I agree. I'm, I yeah, put an amen on that, Rick, because you're, you're only as good as the the wonderful foods that are, are supplied to you. And, you know, I was, Rick, I was saying, you know, I'm in a little bubble here, but one thing, you know, that's, uh, that I was just thinking about that's really interesting is that I, um, I'm in a very rural agrarian, agrarian area here in northern Florida, and um, it's interesting how things just kind of happen, you know what I mean? It just, but I got a call, and I said, Art, can you go to Shenandoah Dairy Farm and help them out? They're, just do a little promo, and, and so... Uh, I went out there, and it's a beautiful farm. It's about 20 miles from here. And, you know, I, I never, ever realized that, that Florida does have dairy because you will always think of dairy being in more cooler climates, And but we actually do produce milk. And um, I don't know um, in terms of cheese. I don't think we make much cheese, but but we do produce milk. And so I went out there, and it was, it was, um, it was you know, it's a beautiful farm, and, and the, the dairyman there is um, – it's interesting, you know, our idea of farmers is, is, is the sophistication of today's farmers. You know, my, I come from a 
family of farmers, and um, and they were pioneer farmers. Um, and the, the farmers that I met, and maybe because of dairy and the science behind it, which requires, you know, we have the University of Florida, which has a great agricultural program, um, and which teaches the science and stuff. But these men, you know, I was just so impressed with them and their knowledge and and the and the the well-being of the animals and how they were kept. And um, but it was um, it was funny. And what happened was is we we're doing this big tour, and I was doing my little you know, little filming, which I've been doing, and um, and I forgot. Rick, I'm back on the back on the the wagon now. I'm I'm been on the whole weight loss thing, and so I've lost 80 pounds. And so oh, you so have. You're amazing. And I kept a, I keep a I keep a, a you know a, a regimen of it. And you know, Rick has been fit since he was he, he was I mean, you know he's, one, he's, one day he's old. He's you know? But, but, uh, no, that's not true. We did television together. No, when we did television, you were always like fit and you know running around the kitchen. But it, anyway, the so in the middle of it, this is hysterical. So in the middle of it, um, I get this call and said, "Art, are you ready to do your workout?" And I'm like, mm, "Time is it?" Yeah. And and so I'm like, "Um, I'm in the middle of the cow pasture with some dairy cattle." And I'm like, <laughs> "And and then I looked at the dairy farmer. This is hysterical. I look at I look at the dairy farmer who I said was very sophisticated, not what I was expecting. And I said, "You don't so happen to have a, a yoga mat around you?" Said, oh, that's, I have one at my house. So in the middle of the cow pasture, he brings me his yoga mat, and I and I and I, and I have my phone set up, and my coach Lucas Consolier, um, who got um, who who got stuck here with me in rural North Florida because he can't go back to Argentina. He's a pro rugby player. Oh yeah, I've read about he, that. Yeah, and he so so he's 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 remote today, but he's insistent that I get my workout. So he so he um, so. So I start doing my exercise in the in the cow pasture, and all the cows gather around me. Which is, and then my, my my guy is watching me, saying they're going to trample you. But they were actually very fascinated with what I was doing, and and you know, and what was interesting about it was is that you know they were very because you know the cows are very very they're very sweet creatures, and they were just they're, just, they're not real smart, Art. And it's so so it blew up. And someone and we got out there, and then this and, I, and to be honest with you, I think that did more good for the dairyman, me doing my exercises <laughs> with the cows, than trying to do some educational thing, saying just let you know you're, you're you know you love your milk or you need to support your dairy. I mean, it, it, that did more good than anything, and it got put out everywhere. But it, well, um, you know the the people with goat rodeo, um, they they. Uh, no, not goat rodeo. <laughs> goat yoga. Goat yoga. I mean, oh, they they made yeah. the whole thing out of that. Right. Yeah. It, but it was interesting, you know, like because people, you know, they don't realize how, you know, these beautiful animals. And maybe, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, Rick has been a pioneer in animal husbandry and 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 just, you know, been so supportive of the farm and and that in that a farm which is run beautifully and animals are well taken care of and good people and everything i mean you you were doing it way before it was fashionable but but the thing is is that you know it's these farmers are putting their whole lives at stake and their families and you know producing these products and then they have no place to sell it and so it's we've you know we've had this horrible situation 
where you know th- there's they, there's no one to buy their milk or or the products from it, the butter and the yeah, cheese. Yeah, I mean, what about the pig, the hog farmers? That's uh, they're going to kill mean, them yes. all. Right, right, and right. Disgusting. And it is. And how you know? And I think you know. And Rick, you know, you're from Tulsa, Oklahoma, okay? And you're and you're uh, from the land of, of you know of, of, of beef and cattle and. And also, you know, they, they grow a lot of – I remember when I was in Oklahoma, I, I loved all the sunflowers they, they grow and everything. But, but, you know, it's just – you know, the American farm is such a, a huge part of the development of our country. I mean, without the farm, there wouldn't be an America. I mean, I, you right. know, there is such a right. – and, and, and we get so now, incredibly – what kinds of things, though, you have this grassroots committee of right. volunteers, and I don't know how many is on this committee – but um, I know a lot of the organizations involved. What kinds of focus are you bringing to resolving this marketing issue? Well, this one that we're involved in is has to do with cheese because most of the farmstead cheese makers, well, any kind of artisan cheese maker, um, it, a lot of them lost their, uh, their way to market their things because they marketed them through restaurants. And so um, what we've done with this organization, uh, this doing these victory cheese boxes, um, sort of like a, a takeoff on uh, the victory gardens, but these Garden. are victory cheese boxes. And so we have the opportunity to put together here in, in Illinois uh, three farmstead cheeses that people can buy. Um, and it's really, really lovely because now these are all farmstead cheeses and the difference between uh, just an artisan cheese and, and a farmstead cheese is that all of the milk is actually produced on the farm. Right. So, um, it, it, I, I, say, I say you can almost always taste the difference because there is just a, a complete harmony in the flavor of farmstead cheeses, something really, really special. So we've put together uh, a box of three of those, three of my very favorite things here in, in Illinois, um, so that people can get these at their houses. So they might have had them in a dish at a restaurant or on a cheese plate at a restaurant, but since the restaurants aren't open for that kind of thing right now, um, it, at least here in Illinois, um, we have the opportunity to get those cheeses to people's homes. So we're asking um, people to, to support us in that. Well, how are you marketing this? And I, some of our local cheese producers, I mentioned Goat Rodeo a little minute ago, um, they're, they're learning how to market online. They never did that before. Oh, really? Now that, yeah, yeah, now, yeah. Most and, everything is online now. <laughs> Well, they have to, but there are people that don't know. I thought part of what your group, the volunteer group, was doing was trying to help people get this online presence and find new ways of marketing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can go to victorycheese.com and you can see the different boxes that have been developed in different parts of the, the United States. Um, so as the, the one that I'm doing, I think it launches next Tuesday or Monday, like next Monday. Um, and uh, I did a really nice video using one of the cheeses so that you could see how you could make a dish with it, a simple dish with it. And so um, all kinds of, of good support material. And so we're just trying to get the, the, the news out there that this is a struggle for a lot of these people who make our lives really, really wonderful by creating these beautiful cheeses, uh, but at the same time to get them into people's hands so that they'll know how delicious they are, and even when they do see them at specialty stores and such, they will buy them. 
who actually does the execution, Rick? Who who actually creates the boxes and and ships them and sends out um, well, the bills and different, gets the different money? Different people like. In, in Illinois, uh, we are putting we are bringing all the cheeses together at one of the creameries at Prairie Fruits Farm that does okay. all the goat cheeses for our restaurant, and um, they will be collecting all the cheese from the other two, and then actually making the boxes and sending them out Got from it. their okay. place. They have a pretty a pretty robust online presence already, and they do a lot of uh, mail order kinds of things. So uh, they're they're set up to do that. So I think it's going to be a really good good thing. We got uh, a local artisan baker that's around uh, around Prairie Fruits Farm to uh, do a, a baguette to go in there, and um, another local jam maker to put some jam in there. So it's a really lovely box. So, I mean, that the picture I see that on that website, is, I mean, I wasn't sure that all that stuff went into the box, the baguette and so forth. Yeah, it does. And yeah. So that's all part of the, the cheese box, the victory box. That's correct. That's correct. We wanted to make well, it a really wonderful. nice thing for everybody. And I've e- I even donated a bunch of books to the cause so that um, I signed a bunch of books so that if people want to buy a signed cookbook from me, um, they can put that in the box as well, and all the proceeds go to Victory Cheese. The, the proceeds go to Victory Cheese. Victory Cheese. Victory who cheese administers that program, the Victory Cheese all, box program? All people from the uh, American Cheese Federation, ACF. Okay. okay. They, they, were, they were here last year, by the way. Yeah. Exactly. American Cheese Society. Yeah. 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 Well, I see. I guess Allison Hooper's been involved with this too. We ate a lot of cheese last year. <laughs> well, we sure did. <laughs> but you know, it, it's a huge market to have to make up. I, I, you know, I just wonder what kind of a dent anybody's going to make selling the victory boxes. Well, they, they, the one that they launched um, last week, I think they've sold already something like two or three hundred of them. So oh, that's, that's that that is really good for these small cheesemakers. And two or three hundred of them makes four or five times of that by the time the world gets around, right? Yep, absolutely. I mean, good, no, old, I, good old word of mouth is a is a big element, I guess, in your marketing program. Yep. Well, no, I mean, is there like uh, regional pockets where where this is hot, the activity is hot? Or is it like a, a more um, um, countrywide operation? Well, I think that each each region is coming up with their own, and um, they're being developed, and then one will be introduced each week. Oh, so it's going okay. It's going to be timed out, spread out. It's going to be spread out for a bit, yes. So that way, they can really focus on one at a time and really do a lot of national marketing on each one. Well, I mean, I hope I hope it helps. I mean, it's just oh, I guess it they it say. Hurt, I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's for sure. And it's you know, there's so many areas like this, though. I mean, the cheese is one. I mean, there's just all of these. I mean, I, a lot of these, like this one purveyor, his his big thing is octopus. <laughs> the guy on is he in Long Island, rabbit. Uh huh. Gulo, yeah, Gulo. Gulo, um, seafood. And, you know, I mean, so he decided he would start doing retail. But it's one thing when you have your list of your market of people who buy octopus. 
and squid. Yeah. But, you know, on the general retail market, I mean, <laughs> how, do you, how do you sell enough octopuses? <laughs> Truly. Yeah. Well, if anybody well, wants to learn, I mean, so many people have been cooking at home, and they're they're not just making, you know, chicken breast every night. A lot of people have had the time to explore a lot of different things, and so this would be the time to, if you wanted to learn how to cook octopus, which isn't hard, that Google. I did it already. <laughs> It's like that Guyo octopus is like the best in the world. So that's actually what we use at our restaurants when we're open. Uh, him, this guy, Gula. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's nice. I mean, he, he really jumped in with both feet, but you know, he has a big education. He's now also selling salmon and things like that. So, and um, I mean, Chef's Garden is now selling retail. They yeah. have boxes of produce, and uh, yeah. it, it, it's a very big, it's a big difference in the market. Though I don't know, like whatever is going to happen. There's so many different pieces of this that have to be implemented. Well, well I, I, I guess that, like you know, things will just collapse, and we won't have as much access to really good stuff anymore. Um, if we can't keep these places alive, that's like I said in Chicago, they're going. People are just announcing one after another that they're never going to open up again. And so, first of all, there's going to be then the uh, that huge real estate uh, collapse, and then of course all of the people that are around the the restaurant that supply the restaurants. And I don't just mean with food and beverage, but also, you know, the the companies that do all of the laundry and all the other services that we have in the restaurant world. Once those people um, collapse, then we're going to it's going to be a huge, huge fallout unless people figure out ways to, to stay alive until they can reopen again. What are your recommendations for how they can stay alive? I mean, what are you doing? We talked, we interviewed um, Mark Canlis, and they're doing all kinds of amazing things. I mean, they're doing a major shift from fine dining to yeah, uh, they did. The they did one of the biggest biggest shifts because they couldn't. They, you I, you can't do the regular canless menu as a takeout menu very easily. Uh, we have Alinea here that did that switched, but of course you would you would when you would go to Alinea you would sign up for the two hundred and eighty five dollar. Uh, yeah. prefix tasting menu and now they're doing a $50 prefix that you finish yourself at your house and, and that's been very successful for them but it it's like um, you know you when have Nick to be really... is making hand, uh, money hand over fist with the takeout he said uh, well he says that yeah um, <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't seen their books but I know that they that they've done a lot of $50 um, uh, take out stuff. So, I mean, that's a nice thing that they've been able to do that. But those are going to be few and far between. Regular restaurants, even some of the best restaurants that you go to, uh, what we can do is we can stay alive by trying to do a little bit of, of takeout and delivery. And we've done that. We've done a whole lot of We've done cooking classes online. Uh, we've done uh, a lot of, of advocacy work. We're taking our time to do that kind of thing as well. So there's a lot to be to be done. But at the same time, I think that we all have to keep in mind that um, the, there are 11 million people that work in restaurants in the United States, and we need to really support that, or there's going to be a big collapse in our economy. 
it's Most definitely. already collapsing, I think. But um, yeah. So, but, well, I hope not, I hope not because I'm going to be. No. I'm, I'm certainly going to be one of the ones that's in that. Then. <laughs> I think, you know, you know, I do believe, you know. That, What's going on is, is just, for most of us, just beyond our belief and what's, you know, and how it's just completely destroying the restaurant industry. And, and I, you know, when you, you know, I heard that figure of all the restaurants in Chicago, it's just terrible. But I do think that, um, you know, um, Rick and I both share, just to give you an example, um, Rick and I both have restaurants at Walt Disney World at Disney Springs. And okay. Rick, have you reopened yet? Do you know? Yeah, we reopened um, two weeks, no, three weeks ago, actually, for the 50% when it was when it went to 50. And, um, and it's, you know, it's a big place, like a lot of places are at Disney, and there's just not that many people because the parks aren't open yet. And let's see, right. I think one of them is opening right now, right? Aren't they opening something? Yeah, right. I believe, oh, so. Univer- I believe you're right. Universal is right. opening on the 11th. So mm-hmm. yesterday Universal right. opened. And so um, we, we opened uh, a couple of weeks before that. Um, and at first everybody was excited and went out, and then it sort of dwindled So um, I, it, because most, it's just for the local crowd there. Well, the reason well, the, the why I was saying that, the expense of converting yeah. your space is one. First of all, you have to have the space. Right. Yeah, and yeah, and a lot that. of restaurants don't have the space. I mean, the big right. chains will have the space and the resources. It's the smaller independent restaurants right. that are having. That's exactly so right. You transforming to, are you transforming a Frontera grill with plastic shields and all that stuff? No, we're not going to do that. Um, that's not sort of my my thing. Plastic shields. Um, we have Jeez. some other things that we're doing, and we're um, we're going to take over the space of our fine dining restaurant, Topolobampo, um, oh, and yeah? we're going to spread Frontera into that to start off with. But we don't even know in Chicago when we're going to be able to open up for in indoor dining. Right, right. So right. we're we're right. still we know you're not in the green yet. Where where we know we won't hear anything until the end of this month, and that's still a long ways away. Oh wow! But what I was mentioning, you know, we're reopening at Disney this Wednesday, and oh, you are to so to we we um, to really our our way of approach has been is we are building a huge porch on the front of our our restaurant. Um, uh-huh. so, and quite honest with you, you know, when you're in Florida, most people like to eat under a porch. And and to really also, you know, you're concerned about how do we, um, you know, get, you know, selling boxes of cheese, which are, are wonderful and a great way to promote the American cheese industry. But I have to tell you, the day that Americans stop eating American mac and cheese is a sad day. They ain't going to stop eating it. And, <laughs> and mac and cheese only tastes good with American cheddar in it. Okay? Uh... And I sell... I sell like a ton of it, and we announced our reopening, and we had 300, 400 reservations in less than 20 minutes. Yeah, you and, and for the for for when, yes, it was that fast. I mean, we we're just fried chicken and mac and cheese there, and 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 when I saw that, and and this these dairymen that I met you have a product that they're using their milk. Um, it's called coffee milk, and so we're going to I'm going to help them bring that to Disney and to and to offer it. Um, in their different locations. So, because I told, I said to my Disney contacts, I said, you know, you know, most of that land that Disney's owned was farms, and yeah. um, and we have, and we, 
like Rick has with his restaurant and my restaurant, we have been, you know, very much, we went in there with uh, our whole approach that we were going to support local. And um, and that's what we've done, and to promote local farms and everything. And I think the way you know someone is as big as as the Disney Disney World Disneyland and getting them to buy American, you know, particularly in cheese and dairy, and that's I think that that that's, that'll put a, uh, help tremendously. Um, and what I found too is that whatever. Um, Disney does, it, then it, it trickles across the country. They see people replicate it because, you know, you know, every, when I grew up in the, in the 60s, people said if, if only Disney ran the country, you know, we, we'd be in a better shape. I mean, it's, it, people looked, you know, I think that one of the toughest things for most Americans is to see this great co- company, um, you know, also suffer. Um, and there's been many great companies like that that have suffered through this. Um, you know, for for some of us, is you know, we we get in our feelings and think, okay, we're the only one are going through this. But there's many, you know, there are also big companies that we have, or big brands that we have supported throughout our you know lives that are, are suffering too. So, I I think as as terrible as it is, and and I do believe that there is light. There's light at the tunnel. I think as long as we, you know, it, we just have to constantly um, remind um, people, um, our customers, our purveyors, everybody that we that, to buy local and, um, and, and keep it that way. Because I think that, you know, there's another organization that its whole focus is keeping um, people buying produce in, in America and not outside the country and you know, I'm I'm a very global kind of citizen, and I'm I'm all, and Rick like does the same thing too. We travel all over the world. We've met people of all different cultures, and and we love food. And and um, but you know, going back to the Great American Farm, I think um, this is a time when we need to look inward and really really take care of ourselves, and to really support the the, the these wonderful farmers who have been supplying us with all this delicious food. And that is the only way that we're going well, to now make Well, let me change. ask you something else. A lot of the – you're talking about other countries. Other countries, the governments have taken on doing a lot of important things to keep everybody afloat, like picking up the rent. Um, for, I mean, this is a big issue in New York and also in Chicago, of course. Um, but, you know, that picking up the rent or um, uh, paying um, – the money to go directly into salaries to maintain staff. Um, our, our country's not doing anything like that. I mean, I, I read about some of the companies that got this, um, whatever this PPP, whatever this thing was, uh, and, and they were company, companies that, that didn't even need them, you know, and, and it just—it seems to be not strategic. The money that the government, the feds, are paying into this recovery seems not to be strategic to the kinds of things that you two are talking about in supporting um, the, the, the smaller businesses and keeping American mm-hmm. business alive. What do you think? Right. Well, I, I think that you're exactly right. There were, certainly were some bad apples of the people that got the PPP money, and it went to a whole bunch of 
of big chains, which it shouldn't have gone to. It should have gone to the, just the small purveyors, but it was very complicated to apply for it. And um, so a lot of the sort of mom and pop places just didn't have a clue how to get that kind of money. And they were the ones that, that probably would have, uh, have utilized it the best. Um, it would help to keep them open. Those are the ones that I'm really concerned about because when you think about like neighborhood restaurants and what makes you feel good about the place that you live and you see the same people there all the time and they're right. so welcoming and hospitable, those are the places that will go away. The chains will stay. They'll, they'll be supported and they have access to lots of capital and lots of them are publicly traded and all that sort of stuff. So those are going to be the ones that you'll see. Uh, but does anybody consider, you know, the Burger King, their neighborhood restaurant? No, it's like when you're trying to raise money for uh, a charitable event, you don't go to the Burger King and ask for a gift certificate. You go to your wonderful little neighborhood restaurant. And, say, yeah. hey, you and they're the ones that cough it up too. And they're the ones that cough right. it up all the time. Yeah. Right. Well, I don't know, but you, you too, are you optimistic? Are we? Well, I, 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 I'm part of the Independent Restaurant Coalition, um, the group that formed immediately after the shutdown um, to lobby for independent restaurants. Um, the National Restaurant Association. Um, also has a similar kind of agenda, but it tends to um, also be very focused a lot on the big chains and such. And so we decided that we really needed something that was just for independent restaurants. And we've been very successful in getting um, a lot of changes done to the PPP program so that it was more useful to restaurants because it wasn't just for restaurants. It was for all small businesses. Yeah, exactly, small businesses. And it restaurants because we weren't open <laughs> so it wasn't like something that we could use and it was very yeah I mean, you, you had to spend it by a certain time and even when they extended yeah. it if you're right. not open you don't have a staff you don't have a staff and so that was why it wasn't very useful to to the restaurant business but um there we're working on a restaurant stabilization fund bill right now and oh good um, and Rep- representative blumenauer from oregon has uh put that together and is presenting it this week um to the house of representatives and i think that is really focused just on restaurants and just on keeping restaurants alive so we are optimistic there's a lot of uh of support for it in Congress right now. Of course, it takes a long time to get things passed, but we are feeling really uh, optimistic at this moment. Well, that's great. I mean, because the restaurants mm-hmm. are working on an, an, another agenda at the same time, which is um, diversity. And I, I mean, I just that. read that letter from um, from um, Danny Myers. I mean, that was a really powerful memo he sent out about yeah. their work in diversity. So I think we're going to have him on talking about that, too. But, um, well, how about if we get together in, um, what, how many months, five months to see how any of these things have worked out? Yes, I think that would be good. Sounds, we sounds we hope good. to be, like, on our feet at that time, but I think everybody is being very um, very realistic to say 18 to 24 months before we'll really sense recovery. Right. Well, we, we, we hope you have a, the victory you deserve. Well, thank yeah. you so very much. Thank well, you. it's been a delight talking to you, Art, and um, 
Thank you. And to talk to you again, Rick, because it's been a Thank long you. time. It has and been. Good luck, good luck, and uh, yes, good, let us come know come if there's again. anything else you'd like to publicize or let us know about. We've been right. trying to, to uh, do um, promote um, turnaround, um, you know, like switching markets to retail and covering things where people have re- resources and and Perfect. covering the restaurants that are recovering and so forth. So anything we can do to help, please let us know. We forgot something very important. Oh, yes, it's, we it's, did. It's, it's, <laughs> Happy Father's Day. It's, Father, it's Father's Day today, and uh, I'm sure I'm sure all you dads out there are very happy, and I'm sure all your children are taking good care of you, and uh, it, it's your day, so be sure to enjoy. And, and you too. And we'll be back. Yeah, and we'll be back after a short break with another, another look at the food business from a slightly different angle. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Our next guest is very brave. <laughs> he, he jumped into situations that I mean I, I would have hesitated jumping into. Um, we're going to talk to Stephen Henderson, and uh, he wrote a book of his experiences in the last ten years called the Twenty Four Hour Soup Kitchen. And you'll learn something here. The new issue is gastrophilanthropy. Let's listen to Stephen. You know, you always learn something in in these interviews, at least I always do. And, I mean, I knew about um, cooking, feeding people. Um, I didn't know it was actually called gastrophilanthropy until I came upon this book by Stephen Henderson called The 24-Hour Soup Kitchen. Soul Stirring Lessons in Gastrophilanthropy. As I told you, Stephen, I've thoroughly enjoyed your book. It's just delightful. You have a great style of writing. You're a journalist, actually, by your profession, right? Well, that's right, Anne, and, and thank you so much for that compliment. That's very nice. Thank you. And um, I'm, not, I'm not sure I can take credit for gastrophilanthropy as a word, but... I think I'm kind of using it more than some people have in the past. Right. We we haven't heard it. We hadn't heard it before, so we'll we'll allow you to claim it. 
Oh, okay. Well, good. Now, this this book is it's really like ten years of effort and exploration, right? Well, it is. I, as you mentioned, Anne, I, I've been a journalist for many years and have had the good fortune to often do a lot of travel writing and food writing and interview chefs and restaurateurs, kind of like yourselves. And it was about 10 years ago that I was in India, in Delhi, and uh, was there for another story. But a, a young person who was there helping me asked me if I wanted to come to his, his temple. He was a Sikh, and he asked me to come to his Gurdwara, which is what Sikh temples are called. And I found out about this soup kitchen there that fed 20,000 people a day. And I was just amazed. It was <laughs> the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. It is amazing. So that's what, that's what got me started. Um, you, I mean, your motivation goes back a long way, though. I mean, you grew up in a kind of restrictive um, childhood um, with the son of a Baptist preacher, right? Very strict. Well, yes. Um, and I, I was born in the late 50s and grew up mostly in the suburbs of New York City. And, right, my dad was a, was a Baptist preacher where I, I joke sometimes that really the only sin that Baptists back in the day were allowed was overeating. Um, you know, so there would be there would be big church suppers and the church ladies kind of amazed me as a kid in their ability to turn out mass quantities of food for hundreds of people, you know, just the people that would be. Yeah, that was kind of what I was aiming for is this, your experience with the church ladies on one hand. And then on the other hand, because your mother was so tied up with all this, you started cooking at what age five? Really early, um, we there were five children in the family, so a household of seven, and you know to turn out food for seven people over and over again. My mother needed help, and so yeah, I I pretty much became her kitchen slave early, and took to it so that I kind of took over cooking family supper. I would say I was cooking on my own in my early early teens, like, you know, 12, 13, I was cooking dinner alone. Right. But um, what what actually, I mean, I know you, your encounter in India, which is brilliantly written, I mean, your characterization, the one thing that comes through, by the way, your characters are phenomenal. I mean, I, don't, I was questioning this, I read it along, how much of this was your imagination or was it your observation? Oh, it's it's nonfiction. This, you know, I am a journalist, so I take notes and I write things down. These are all real people. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't make any of this up. Um, and it, I just, as I followed this story from India to other cities around the world, you know, because I would be assigned to do a story in Japan or in South Korea or in Mexico, and then I would add some days on and try to find someone who was a gastrophilanthropist, someone cooking for poor people in that part of the world. And how did they do it? 
Yeah, well, I mean, of course, as a journalist, I've been down that route, too. You you can frequently match where you want to go to your assignment or or vice versa. Right. (laughs) So you found yourself writing about rice growing and things like that, so you could, because you want to visit a certain area. Um, Right, right. But, I mean, your characters are just so strong, and as I was questioning myself how much of this, I mean, I know it's not fiction. I know it's real. But how much did you embellish the characters? I hit on somebody I know that you were writing about when you did the Jubilee Kitchen in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and she, you hit her right on the nose. <laughs> she was amazing. Well, yes, Sister we Liguori. were talking about Sister Sister Liguori. Who and you call her Attila the, the Nun. Attila the Nun, exactly. <laughs> Just because the, the interesting thing about Jubilee Soup Kitchen was that she took no government, no state, no national, no funding from anyone other than her own donors so that if anything went on there that she didn't like, she could just shut the place shut down. Shut the whole thing down, and she would, too. And she would. She was, <laughs> she was fierce. She didn't suffer fools, and she didn't put up with misbehavior. And, you know, if you acted out, you would go hungry. It was real tough love. <laughs> but your your book is filled with experiences, and um, and are you still doing this? Well, I am. I am. Um, I'm. Uh, I live in New York City, but uh, my husband and I have a weekend house up in the Hudson Valley, where mm-hmm. we've been since COVID nineteen. And about oh, yeah. three, we, we've been here for three months, but um, so the little town near us is Hudson. It's, it's not so small. It's a proper city. Mm-hmm. And there's a soup kitchen there that I've been cooking lunch in every Tuesday for the last three months. Oh, really? And yeah, yeah. I, I just went in there to donate some food and I was talking to the nice woman who runs the place. And I said, well, you know, I don't how to cook for lots of people. And she said, can you come next Tuesday? <laughs> so I talked myself into a job. So just in case you're wondering what was going on back then, by the way, Stephen, that, that was Grove Pittsburgh delivering some plants that are going to go into our garden. Oh, 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 yeah. We're growing. Everybody's gardening now, of course. Um, oh yes. Yeah. So um, now, I. This is such an issue all of a sudden. It's not an issue all of a sudden. It's gone on for years. But suddenly the world seems to be woke to, excuse the term, on the fact right. that, that we waste 40% of our food and, um, and, and, and people are going hungry. And with the COVID now, we're watching um, this disconnect where there are all these hogs and the hog farmers have no way of getting the hogs to the people, and, and they're going to have to euthanize them all, which is they're going to kill them all is what it means. Uh, what do you think is, where is the disconnect? Where does it start? Wow. And that's, that's, that's a question kind of above my pay grade. I mean, I think, yeah, I know. unfortunately, though, you know, we're going to have to face we that love to eat. We're going to have to face the fact that, you know, meat is a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, meat, you know, a, a, an unfortunate truth and an inconvenient truth, to use President, you know, Vice President Gore's old phrase, 
is that, you know, the production of meat is, is just a terrible thing for the environment. Yeah, and, but, you know, yes, you, it, yes, yeah. it, it uses so much water. You know, the cows release methane gas. It's just really bad. And, you know, the American diet especially is over-reliant on meat, and we're constantly trying to get people to eat more fruits and vegetables, and it's something of a losing, you know, proposition. It just doesn't ever seem to take hold. Um, and, you know, even in this soup kitchen that I'm cooking in Hudson every Tuesday, you go into the walk-in freezer and there's, there's more meat there than there are vegetables or fruits. It, you know, it's just, and it's just odd. So, um, you know, so meat, meat is a problem. And um, I think also, I'm talking mostly about America here, but I think American food producers and consumer product manufacturers have convinced a lot of Americans that cooking is very hard, it's very difficult, it's probably better for them to eat fast food or easier or cheaper and, you know, or to eat processed food because cooking is difficult. And I'm not saying cooking is easy, but cooking is so much better for you and better for your spirit, as you obviously know. I'm preaching to the choir here. But, um, <laughs> You're talking to our listeners. That's all right. Yes. I, I just think there's been this massive, you know, disinformation campaign about the difficulties of cooking so that people have been reliant on bad food products, you know, with lots of corn syrup or lots of extra calories, lots of fat, lots of salt. And, you know, so it, it's to the fact, to the extent that we're waking up to the fact that we can – you know, people are at home and they're cooking more because restaurants are shut and fast food places are closed. And I'm talking about people who are fortunate enough to have money to buy food. But um, I think a lot of, yeah, but I think a lot of people are, are experimenting in the kitchen in a way that I think will be beneficial once life returns to normal because people, you know, we have friends who have not cooked for a long time and suddenly they're rediscovering the joy of cooking. Yeah, well, I mean, they they have statistical data at this point uh, showing that with COVID, um, there's been an increase in consciousness about uh, healthful foods and particularly uh, plant-based as opposed to meat. Right, right. Yeah, but whether it carries over, I don't know. Sweetheart, did you did you read the story in New Yorker magazine about uh, fake meat? About what, Andy? About, uh, what were they called? Beyond, Beyond Meat and that other one that we got the sample of. Oh, is that the one that talks about all the chemicals in it? It's a, no, it was just a, just a long article like New Yorker always is. Yeah, I know. I actually, actually got all the way through it. But it, it leads me to the next question, I guess, for uh, Stephen, and that's what, what, what does he see? in terms of you know, non-meat meat and other things like that? And does that help in the future or not? Well, um, I've been experimenting a lot lately with, with legumes, with rice and beans, with lentils. I mean, the, yeah. the, the experience that led me to this, we were talking about the, uh, the soup kitchen deli that fed 20,000 people a day. Of course, it was a vegetarian diet and, oh, yeah? you know, an, enor- an enormous pot, you know, the 
size of a jacuzzi was was cooking of lentils all day long. And really, if you've had delicious dal, you know what D-A-L, you know what Indian yeah. dal is, you know, dal and rice and a green salad or a green vegetable, there's there's really nothing better than that. It, it it leaves you full. You have the protein from legumes. You have it's so good tasting. You don't feel kind of heavy from it. So, Peter, I think I think as people are cooking a little bit more at home and rediscovering some of the joys of cooking, as I said, I think if people are experimenting more with rice and beans and lentils, especially. Um, well, and I've been, earlier this winter, I was making a lot of split pea soups, oh, yeah. which are so easy and so delicious that, and so economical. So um, I, I think for those who are willing to experiment and, and to try new things, um, this, this could be a, a tipping point and a turning point. Well, I hope so, because Retto Gordo had a hard time filling their orders to them because everybody switched to beans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. But I, I always tell um, Steve, the, um, uh, um, Steve Sando, who owns Rancho Gordo, about the uh, Blue Zone. Um, you know, one of them is... Um, um, what, is, what am I thinking of? It's Sardinia, and they were um, what are they called? Super the ones that live over a hundred years, and 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 they asked this guy what was the, he would attribute his longevity to, and he said beans. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Well, I can believe that because boy, when you have a nice bowl of dal, you just like I said, you just feel healthier after you eat it. Yeah, well, we I have it. Try it for breakfast with soft-boiled eggs. Peter makes me. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a combination of, of lentils and um, quinoa. Lentils, quinoa, and what's the other one? Yeah, the other one I don't like so much, actually. The other. Chia, chia. <laughs> chia. There's, there's, there's chia oh, right. in the latest batch I made for you. Just, I just didn't tell you that there is. I, I can tell because it's the texture that I don't like with chia seeds. Uh, they're oily. <laughs> it kind of clumps together, so I know that there's a chia in there. Um, well, so so we're maybe on a better path, aren't we, after as a result of this pandemic? Well, we might be. That's, a, that's an optimistic spin. Uh, we... You know, we're humans. We tend to revert to what we knew pretty quickly once, you know, a, a crisis is over. We've we've had a near-death experience. Yeah, I know. We'll see how quickly we, we can, or or not, we return to our old ways. It's not over anyhow, so. But, no, um, well, no, it's not. I, I thought you were very brave. I mean, I, did, I pictured myself in some of those situations, especially the... Um, some of the the lack of sanitation and, and your Indian ex, India experiences, I always had a problem with that with Indian lack of sanitation. But you were a stalwart, if nothing else, and you jumped into situations that you you couldn't even anticipate what you were going to find. I mean, I'm thinking of your experiences in Japan, for example. 
with the Buddhist. Well, right. And, yeah. and as, as, I, as I describe in the book, you know, as you and Peter know, as journalists, you're asking questions, you're asking, you know, you're asking favors to people sometimes. May I spend some time with you? May I follow you around? And sometimes if you, if you try to determine and nail everything down too much ahead of time, people get kind of spooked. You know, and they're thinking, well, who is this person and what do they want from me? And so you have to be a little improvisational. So you're right. I did find myself sometimes in, in unexpected and, and funny situations. But that's really the joy of being a journalist is being able to – it's kind of like a treasure hunt, isn't it? That you one yeah. question leads to another question, leads to another, and that's the fun of it. Well, you know, the thing is it's all written – you have such a great – wit and sense of humor that makes it enjoyable there's nothing enjoyable there's nothing preachy about it this this whole book well thank you i i think if if i am preaching anything through the book i'm just trying to tell people that you know soup kitchens are open 20 you know 365 days a year and you know a lot of people kind of forget that hunger exists other than on thanksgiving day which is really the only day that soup kitchens in the United States do not need help, uh, you know, because they're overloaded <laughs> with volunteers on that day. Yeah, and, and also, yeah I told you Sister Liguria used to come in and rouse up our network lunch, and uh, Liguria, and um, then all these people for like once a year would show up as volunteers on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> right, which is when she didn't need anybody. Yeah, exactly. What do you you think of uh, Jose Andres? Oh, I think he's fantastic. I I I read his book, We We Fed an Island, about going down to Puerto Rico after the hurricane there. And what he's doing with, you know, World Central Kitchen, it's it's extraordinary. I I deeply, deeply admire him. And, I I mean, another thing I talk about in in my book, The 24-Hour Soup Kitchen, is just that, the mass cookery that he's doing or the mass cookery that happens in any soup kitchen. I mean, making dinner for you and Peter is one challenge. Making dinner for a family of four is another challenge. Making something edible for 200 people or 2,000 people or 60,000 people, it's, it's just so hard because you can't just double or triple or times a recipe by 100. You know, it just doesn't work that way. And so you, you, it, Jose Andres is not only a genius in how he has raised money and raised awareness, but that he instinctually knows how to make food that that many people can eat and be nourished and find delicious. It's, it's a very unusual talent. Uh, yeah, well, he's going to step up, you know, to uh, the voting poll for the elections now. For um, he's going to send his uh, World Central Kitchen people to the elections. So when they're stuck, as they're undoubtedly going to be stuck, waiting in lines forever and ever and ever, um, it, he's going to be able to provide food for them. Oh, is he doing oh, that? Oh, wow! That's a great idea. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's I just posted idea. a whole thing yeah. on that. So. I sent him a. I, I didn't send you a copy of that, Rabbit. I don't know. I, I posted so. something on to him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So he's wow, come a long way. Yeah. 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 So um, well, yeah, no, he's is, wonderful. 
maybe I'll, I'll mention while we're talking about Jose Andres, uh, and maybe you were going to get to this, Anne, but a character, another character in my book is this fabulous French chef. Yeah, I want to know all about Wyatt. him. Yes, well, because I'll, I never I'll, heard I'll, of I'll them. Yeah, a lot of people haven't, which is why I'm sort of happy to, to be resuscitating him. He was, he was the most famous chef in the world. He was the Daniel Ballou and El Prepare and Martha Stewart and Rachel Ray rolled together into one in Victorian England. And he was cooking at this very poshy men's club, you know, like think Downton Abbey. You know, this, this, the, the richest men in the world went to this club called the Reform Club. And they hired oh, sure, sure, yeah, Soye. Yeah, yeah. They they hired him to be their chef de cuisine, and he built a kitchen at the Reform Club that was literally a, a, a wonder of the world. He he created cooking with gas, he created kitchen timers, he created a whole system for making haute cuisine. You know, he was cooking for rich men. He wasn't cooking then for poor people, but. So he's doing all of this, and then the, the potato famine hits in Ireland in the yeah, mid-1840s, yeah. yes, and yes. he decides to go to Dublin and basically create another cooking machine, a kitchen, but to feed poor people. And so he, I, I credit him kind of with creating the soup kitchen because he, he invented this way of making enough soup and enough bread to feed 600 people over and over and over again for, for weeks on end in Dublin during the potato famine. You know, why was and, he lost to history? I mean, I, I, I don't get that. There is, you did, you mentioned a reference book, somebody wrote a biography. A, a British author named Ruth Cowan wrote a book about him called Relish. Um, I think it's called Relish, the Making of a Victorian Celebrity Chef. It's a really, really good biography. It, it you know, both talks about England when it was at its absolute, you know, zenith of power in the 19th century, and who were these guys that were coming to the kitchen, and and this this man, Alexis Soyer, he was, you know, he was bawdy and funny, and uh, uh, he would sing and tell dirty jokes. And he was outrageous, also, right? He was outrageous. He was outrageous. He spent a lot of money on his clothes, and he had them all custom made, and he created these meals of just unbelievable splendor. And yet, he would go cook for really poor people in poor neighborhoods in London. Wearing his patent leather boots and his beret, and, and a ring on every and, finger. Yeah, I thought that was funny. And a, and a ring on every finger, and you know. So, uh, another theme of the book is just that you don't have to be a saint, or you don't have to give up all you have to occasionally think of and remember that poor people need to be fed too. So, um, it he, a he, bit like... he was kind of my. Go ahead. I'm Go ahead, right. Peter. It sounds a lot like Oliver Twist set to music. <laughs> well, it is, and which 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 kind of brings us back to Jose Andres. That you know, Jose Andres had a lot of fantastic, you know, very poshy, expensive restaurants. Yeah, and you know, he's he's someone who can swing both ways too. You know, he, he I'm sure he's happy to cook with the finest ingredients, and he'll also cook. Oh, he does. What he's he got. He, his company uh, brings in the special Iberica hams that cost. You have to sign up and, and pledge a thousand something dollars, pound or something. You know, the special right. hams, yeah. Right. Um, 
And do you know about Massimo Botturis? I do not know about Massimo Botturis. Who is he? Oh, you have to check this out. And Massimo Bottura was um, his restaurant in Modena uh, was number one in the world, the last 50 best list. And, um, okay. and I mean, we've known him since the 90s. And a meal there costs what rather a lot. Massimo's yeah. restaurant, the Osteria Francescana. But he cooked leftovers. Well, he, he was, was it, wasn't there the food expo in Milan a few years ago? Yeah, that's and, he did. He he collected he all the scraps all the from all the different pavilions, and and started. Um, uh, he had the best chefs in the world cooking up all these these different meals that cost a fortune and so forth. But then he had also people feeding the. It was like a soup kitchen, and that led uh-huh. to his wife's involved with it as well. Uh, he's setting up to these refractorias all over the world, and and he believes that um, the poor and the hungry they deserve to be seated at fine tables and be served a fine food and be treated with respect. And this is a spreading movement. He's been doing this for uh, what about six years now, Rabbit? More like more like four or five, I think. Well, it's close. Wow. Well, I will. You don't know about him? I'll check him out. Massimo Bottura. Okay. Um, In in uh, Modena. Because there are some some restaurateurs are experimenting with a model where diners who can afford to pay come in and and they eat at the same restaurant as people of less means or poor people, and that. The people that pay full fare sub, sub, uh, supplement or subsidize yeah. the poor people who can't afford to pay anything. Oh, well, so yeah. that's also a good idea. Yeah, but uh, checking with Massimo, um, we we almost got in one of his um, uh, refractorias in um, in London, and then somehow it didn't work out. But uh, he set up with the. Um, Expo Milano, and then he expanded. He set up with the uh, in Brazil when the Olympics were there, and now he's just setting up all around. And what does he call it? Food for Soul. That's the project. And Food you talk for about soul. soul. So okay. you you might enjoy that too. Food for Soul. Got it. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. That's it. Well, so there's, there's things happening that, around the world. Now, are you moving are on? To, to, are you going to keep doing what you're doing? Do you have any plans? You've learned a lot. I mean, there's so many different experiences you had, so you must realize that there are many different approaches to dealing with food insecurity. I mean, what stands out from all these experiences in your head? Well, there are, and I'll answer your first question first. I'm well, first of all, all the proceeds from the sales of this book are going to Food Bank for New York City, okay. um, which, which is a, a not-for-profit food organization in New York that's been hit particularly hard by COVID-19, as has New York, oh, yes. obviously. Um, but my plan, as soon as I can travel again, is I want to go on a – I'm going to drive myself around the country, and I'm going to appear in different cities where – I, my plan is to host dinner in honor of local chefs in Atlanta or Baltimore or Houston or Chicago 
chefs that cook in soup kitchens to draw attention to the fact that there are people that are doing this 365 days a year, and, you know, they're turning out, you know, good, healthy food for people that need it the most, and they're real unsung heroes. And I want to draw attention to those people around the U.S. So that, that's, that's the, how this project is going to develop next. And then, um, I don't know, I, I, I have a vague plan that really I would like to try to see if I could work with some people to pull together a cookbook for recipes to feed many people at once. I mean, even though earlier I was saying how difficult it is to scale up, and but you know, the, the military has cookbooks that, you know, to make chili for 500 people. But, right. it, you know, they're, they're not they're, – I've cooked some of the recipes, and they're just not so great. And not good. I don't know if you saw – there was a story in the New York Times yesterday about the – or Wednesday about the Sikh community, again, um, Indian people who – they, 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 there are these soup kitchens called Longars at Sikh temples all across the United States, and they're feeding many, many people during the pandemic, and they're also feeding a lot of people that are protesting in the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. Yeah. And so I, I would like to maybe reach out to some people in the Sikh community to see if we could develop a cookbook of some of the recipes that they – and, of course, those are healthy vegetarian recipes. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you also know. hit the vegetarians food yeah right right well if you have your hands full i mean that's a huge issue and i just i'm so glad you published your book and you spent a lot of time in pittsburgh did you ever talk to the people at 412 food rescue um no i I was i cooked in a different soup kitchen every year for about five years but i didn't this is a food rescue um um, operation. It's a nonprofit, um, but they also have um, they have chef members, um, and uh, the, the, Leia Lizarando is the uh, she really set up a, a, a thing for food rescue, sort of a cross between Uber and um, and her food experiences, her double degree. Oh, she, she's from the Philippines. Pardon. Okay. And uh, so, but they just now acquired a, a, um, a community kitchen so that they could get not just food that they can that's prepared that they could recycle to to the people needing it from people who want to dump it to people who want to really need it, but they also can um, take raw ingredients and make food and deliver it. Well, that's great. That's yeah. great. There's a lot going on. Like- which is another thing that people can be encouraged to do, their listeners, is that, you know, if, if they're gardening or they're growing, you know, soup kitchens need food. Community kitchens, pantries, they need food. If you've got extra tomatoes or extra zucchini or even if you want to just go to the grocery store and buy some food and then just donate it, people will be happy to see you. Yeah. This is a food distribution company called Paragon Foods in Pittsburgh. Um, they had a, an overflowing warehouse um, with primary customers in the restaurant industry and food service and so forth. And uh, they, the owner, um, the CEO, she said she didn't know anything about takeout or anything like that. So what she did was she just opened the, um, the warehouse that was overflowing with food 
uh, people, you just went, um, ran for two days, you brought your own boxes or bags, took what you wanted for free, and that was it. And she said they had, first time out, they had 200 people. Yeah. Yeah, so... Anyhow, well, there's lots going on. I could talk to you forever, Stephen Henderson. (laughs) Take care of our our shared name here. Yes. We Hendersons have to stick together. Have you ever seen the Henderson Tartan? Um, I'm not sure. The the Tartan plaid, it's it's a good-looking one. The Hendersons you are a part of, sweetheart, they they thought they were from Ireland. Uh, They have an Irish relative. Having me. Enjoyed it thoroughly and keep in touch. Keep keep Thank posted. Thank you so much to both of you. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Final segment that is not directly related to COVID. It's a product we want to introduce you to, um, which has to do with health, which we all want look forward to trying to do now. It's called IO Almond Yogurt, and we're going to be talking to its creator, Matt Billings. Go ahead. Yes, we're talking to Matt Billings. Um, Matt, you have a, a long family history um, involving almond uh, growing in California, which is, as I understand, is the biggest producer of almonds in the whole entire world, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, your product or your company is called IO. And it's IO almond yogurt. And all of these nuts come from your farm, right? Correct. Yeah, it's AO. So it's, it's, we're real original namers. So A for almond, YO for yogurt. So AO, AO yogurt. <laughs> and and it, um, we grow both conventional and organic almonds, but all the organic almonds that go into the AO yogurt come from our farms. And you have one product only, and you've built a whole family history on that. Yeah, the the, I mean, historically in this area, we've I mean, fourth generation family farmer in uh, in uh, Kern County, California, Kern and Tulare County, uh, California, and we grew other things for years. Uh, really, in the last three generations, we really started to move into almonds, and it probably wasn't until the last. I don't know, 20, 25 years, 20, 25 years that we're almost 100% almonds. We still grow a few other things, but almost all of it is almonds now. One of our interviews a long time ago was, was with the 
person who, who heads up the, the Blue Diamond organization. Uh, are you a part of that whole group? Uh, years and years, probably three decades ago, we were part of the Blue Diamond, and then we broke off, or maybe even more than that, maybe four, four decades ago, we broke off and started doing, we basically do what they do, but we do it uh, ourselves. Okay. Okay. Um, wh- why is it all of a sudden that almonds have become so popular? We have almond milk everywhere and now almond yogurt. and um, it, it seems like the whole world is suddenly converted to almond lovers. I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> One, I think it's it's a uh, it's a very healthy food source, and, and it's a very nutrient rich. I mean, it's a seed or a nut, basically uh, high in vitamin E, uh, high in fiber, and um, I I guess kind of my thought is, is historically it's been very limited growing regions, mainly in Spain, Italy, uh, parts of France, and California, uh, the Central Valley's climate is really promotes almond almond growing, and it's, it's the the trees just really flourish here, and especially with um, the irrigation sis- districts that we have coming from snowmelt and and rain, it, it's really uh, just fits almonds probably better than a lot of other crops. I guess. Sorry. There's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of different crops that can be grown anywhere in the world, and really in California's Central Valley, almonds it's one of the few places in the world you can grow them. So, uh, but you know, one of the criticisms is that they use so much water, right? Yeah, that is a criticism. I I personally think it's it's a little misguided uh, when you look at uh, plant-based foods uh, for protein, say. Uh, because there, any plant-based protein is going to be a lot more efficient than uh, uh, animal protein. But if you look at plant-based proteins and you look at the grams of proteins, protein produced per gallon of water, almonds are one of the most efficient. Really? So, yes. So why is everybody complaining about the use of uh, too much water? Uh, I think a lot of it happened because there was a uh, several years ago is really when it popped up. There was a drought going on, and everybody, if you're driving through California, there's a lot of acres of almonds. So, I think we are just an easy crop to pick on. Right. Uh, uh, No, no. That's that's kind of my. I mean, every and I think a lot of people. If you're not a farmer, you don't realize that everything you eat takes water. Yeah. And and. uh, Really, almost every crop probably takes pretty close to the same amount of water. If it's grapes or if it's almonds or if it's, I mean, alfalfa probably takes more. Grapes take a little bit less, but pistachios take about the same, maybe a little bit less. So yeah. every crop takes water to grow. And I think it's, we were just easy to pick on at the time, as Mike said, in my opinion. <laughs> now, wh- why, why yogurt? That's a good question. Uh, most of the nuts that we we grow we sell internationally so we sell okay on a on a global scale and we sell to a lot of other people that'll further process them maybe someone will make an almond milk or a chocolate or a marzipan or you know something like that toblerone or so 
we're stuck in this commodity business, and we've we've always tried to. I mean, we love we grow our almonds. We love them. I think they're unique. They've got great flavor, and we want to share that with the world. So, w- one of the things we've tried to do is to uh, come up with a, a branded product that is our own, and and uh, we can share a great flavor, a great taste. So originally we, we tried, this is years and years ago, we tried some roasted salted snack nuts, and that was kind of hit or miss. And then we started looking at almond butters, we looked at almond milks, we looked at yeah. uh, all, all, all these different types of products, and then one day it just kind of hit on us. Uh, I, I eat a lot of yogurt, and... We thought, you know, this almond almond milk yogurt. I love yogurt. Uh, most oh, everyone in my family does, and that's it. Just kind of hit us. Uh, <laughs> not truly an aha moment, but it was it was something I think that we looked at and we said, you know, this is really going to be. It could be a very unique product, especially. We're not trying to masquerade and make it something else. Uh, we're not trying to make a Greek dairy milk yogurt. Yeah, yeah, no, the, it's supposedly from the literature you sent, um, it's supposedly the consistency of it, which it depends on how you like yogurt, um, you know, yeah, if you it, like it thicker or thinner. Yeah, it's a, thin, it's, it's a thinner, more European-style yogurt, French style. It's French, I understand it's classic French-style yogurt. Yeah, it's a, it's a thin, it, yeah, it's definitely, it's not a thick Greek, but I think what we were trying to do, too, is not, make an imitation of a milk yogurt. We're trying to make a new product, and it, it we kept the fruits fruit flavors very simple, the four most common fruit flavors that are sold, so it's nothing out of the ordinary. And then you have this great fruit-forward fl- taste and, and a toasted almond finish to it. So we're really trying yeah, to... Yeah, I mean, it's, the it's almond. almond. There's no question that it's almond when you taste it. <laughs> it really is sure. almond. Sure, absolutely. And, and so what flavor, how many flavors do you have? We have four flavors. So uh, blueberry, strawberry, vanilla, and peach. Yeah, well, those are the basic uh, which, which is the Which is the favorite of all, probably blueberry, huh? You, you know, it's interesting. We, we look at what, what is purchased and what sells, and they're almost all exactly neck and neck. So, you think, think people just go to the store and buy all four flavors at the same time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, what they do. I mean, it ranges between 23 and about 27%, depending. Uh, my favorite's probably blueberry and vanilla. I uh-huh. kind of lean that direction. Strawberry is probably a, distant, uh, a close third, and then I've never been a huge peach fan, so I guess peach is not my favorite, but my, my kids love the peach, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everyone peaches. has their own taste. Yeah. No, I I used to love fruit on the bottom, and and especially the blueberries on the bottom. Have you tried Have you tried fruit on the bottom? We've tried that. Our current manufacturing process it's we don't add sugar to the yogurt, so we add it's it's basically a puree with some some chunks of fruit or whole pieces of blueberry, and we mix it in because that's where a little bit of the sweetness comes is from the fruit only, because we're not adding sugar into the base. Uh, yeah, well, it's supposedly healthy. I mean, this is, your, um, this is what you, you run on as your um, game plan for your product, is that it's healthier than um, most other things you could snack on, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, with other non-dairy yogurts, 
uh, we're probably kind of middle of the road in calories. Um, we have a lot of the good almond fats because in every cup, I think which is unique to us too, is there's about 20 almonds per cup. So we have a really high percentage of almonds in in the yogurt. We're lower sugar than most of the others, and we're pretty we're we're high in fiber. So those are kind of our big selling points. But really, above all, we wanted to produce something that tastes good. So. If, now, if it taste has, good. Has, has, have you created an industry, or are you called, called almond yogurt, or is it pretty much just you? Uh, there's a couple other competitors that are uh, may, maybe a few that are a year or two older than us, uh, but it's definitely a challenge. So I guess we're I don't I wouldn't say we created the industry, but we're definitely some of the first people in it trying to. To, to push the almond milk yogurts. Some cows hate you. <laughs> well, yeah, not, it's, it's interesting. Going back to your water comment from earlier, almonds, when you grow almonds, there's three distinct products that we're growing. So an almond's a first cousin to a peach. So uh, Yeah, if you eat that the kernel in the center, do you remember from peaches and apricots for a while? It was viewed that this was some kind of a, a, a thing to, to attack cancer or something to prevent cancer, and then it turned out it was arsenic. Uh, yeah, Do you remember uh, that? Si- si- yeah, cyanide. It's got a cyanide. Cyanide, that's it. Pre- precursor. Uh, yeah, no, they in apricot kernels and, and peach kernels. Yeah, exactly. But the the peach, like if you look at an almond when it's growing, there's a fuzzy outer outer. They call it a hull, H-U-L-L, and it's kind of the consistency of a suede material. And that's mm-hmm. the equivalent of the, f- the flesh on a peach you would eat. Oh, and yeah. we, we sell that actually to the, the uh, dairy milk industry, and they use it as, as feed for the cows. And the shell as well, which would be the equivalent to the peach pit, we sell that for feed and bedding into the uh, cattle industry. And then the nut itself is only about 25% of that weight. And so that's another thing when people say almonds waste a lot of water, they're, they're not including the entire crop. So 75% of the weight of that crop is going for other industries and being used. So when you, when you look at all that's that. That's interesting. The, I never heard about that. Yeah, the almond itself is actually much more efficient than most people. They're, they're painting a uh, partial picture. Yeah, well, the, it, yeah, I mean, I guess there are all kinds of uses for the, the – the um, the shell and and I happen to like green almonds, you know the early oh, things. I love them. I I don't know where you get them though. Why don't they're, you sell some of those? <laughs> what? I usually I usually save those for ourselves. <laughs> oh, do you? Off, yeah, we we <laughs> save we harvest them off the young trees the a year or two before they start to produce. We we go out and hand pick them. Oh, see, I love those, and I never can find them anywhere. This is they used the time to have them at that cheese place. Hmm? This should be the time of year you'll be able to find them. It's right about now. I don't know what kind of shop. I used to get them from that, that cheese place in New York because they used to serve them along with the cheese thing. Well, uh, listen, I think, how many family members are working in the business now? Currently, uh, it's just really myself and my, my father's uh, 
kind of on the path to retirement, so it's really just the two of us. The two of you. Well, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope people will jump on the uh, almond yogurt bandwagon for you. Um, I thank you for introducing us to your uh, product here, Matt Billings. And again, it's, um, you pronounce it? A-O. 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 Which is certainly easier to pronounce than a Greek yogurt And Go to Billings, Montana sometime. You'll get them all confused. Every time I go, I'm confused myself. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, thanks a lot for talking to us, Matt. And, Peter, thank you very much. Have a wonderful weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that was kind of a marathon program. Yeah, it so was. But it's Father's Day, what the hell. Humor the old man after all. And we'll we'll be back same time, same place. So humor us until then. Bye-bye. Oh, there, there you go. Do it again. Bye-bye.